0: Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts.
1: Funding provided by Gregory Melville and Susan Fox and Kathleen Bromage.
2: Hydroelectric dams helped shape and helped power New England. Now their owners are facing pushback.
3: But this is our river, and it's our water. They don't own it, but they use it to create profits for their business.
2: From the New England News Collaborative, this is Next. I'm John Dankoski. Travel with us along the Connecticut River as we hear ideas about what to do with the river and its dams. And 50 years after the assassination of Robert F. Kennedy, we'll visit an archive that's being used for exploring alternate theories of his death.
4: It starts with the LAPD records here, then the FBI records, the House Select Committee on Assassinations, photographs, newspaper clippings.
2: Plus, those ancient stone walls are an iconic feature of New England. But do you know just how
1: many there are? And I've calculated it would be six times as massive if we piled it all of all the pyramids in Egypt. It's Next.
2: Next is powered by the New England News Collaborative. Eight public media companies coming together to tell the story of a changing region, with support from the Corporation for Public Broadcasting. We're going to start our show on the Long Tidal River that stretches from the border with Canada to Long Island Sound. The Connecticut is our region's biggest river and long a source of power, as well as commerce and recreation. A group of hydroelectric dams along the river in New Hampshire, Vermont and Massachusetts are undergoing a once in a generation process a federal relicensing. Residents who live near these dams are hoping that the company that owns them takes this opportunity to not only utilize hydroelectric power, but to protect local wildlife and maybe even make it a better place for outdoor activities like whitewater paddling. New Hampshire Public Radio's Annie Peak takes us on a tour of some of the dams around the region and talks with people who live, work, and play nearby about what they hope might change.
4: Steve Stocking has farmed the banks of the Connecticut River in Fairleigh, Vermont, for 50 years. He took me to the edge of his cornfields in early May to see the river and what he feels nearby dams have done to his land.
3: The slope falls down, especially when it soaks up with water from high levels, and then it runs out quickly and it weakens the support, and it sloughs, it sloughs down.
4: Down here, we can see where the water has carved away the muddy banks. Now, rivers do cause erosion, but Stocking says the dams constantly raise and lower the water level more than is natural, and he thinks that's caused erosion 85 feet since he came here.
3: To sit here and watch landage pay taxes on and that you could grow corn on or, or crops on be sloughing off into the river... You know, I don't know what to tell you if we would have, you know, bought it, but it was, it's what we did.
4: Stocking's farm is 18 miles upriver from Wilder Dam near Dartmouth College. Stocking and others want to have a say in how much water the dam pulls down the river every day.
5: And, you know, we'll have our chance now, and then there won't be another chance for another 50 years.
4: This is Kathy Erfer with the Connecticut River Conservancy. She says this is a unique moment. Great River Hydro, the company that owns Wilder Dam and others, is seeking new federal licenses for three of its facilities. These permits are decades long, and Erfer says they spell out exactly how the dams will operate. Here at Wilder Dam, we can see those operations in action.
5: And you can look upstream, and there is a pretty calm pool of water that looks like a lake. (laughs) And then if you look downstream, and you might be able to hear the water flowing, um, what you see is the water coming through the dam. You know, there's basically like white water below the dam that then is flowing down.
4: As that water flows, it runs through turbines that create electricity. Great River Hydro holds back some or all of the river's flow every day until the time is right to sell power. Then they open the floodgates. Further south is Bellows Falls Dam, another that's up for relicensing. Kathy Erfer shows me how excess spring meltwater is rushing through a channel on the side of the dam called a bypass.
5: You know, one of the things that we would like to see is uh, water in this bypass all the time, right? And basically restoring the habitat here in this section of the river.
4: Erfer wants more protections for fish and mussels at the dams and in their flow rates. She also wants people to have better access to the river. Right now, the dams are kind of foreboding. We keep passing warning signs as we walk around Bellows Falls.
5: So the sign says, warning, changing water levels. Be constantly alert for water level increases. Water upstream may be released at any
4: time. People who are into whitewater paddling think this area could be made just safe enough to be really fun. They even had Great River Hydro do an official study where the dam released different amounts of water and paddlers tested them out. John Raganese is in charge of this whole process for Great River Hydro. He says he's here to work with everyone the dams affect, but his company and others disagree with those who say the dams are causing widespread erosion on the Connecticut. Raganese says that's based on a misconception about how much the dams control the river. He says they can adjust the water level right at the dam, but you wouldn't see the same fluctuations miles upstream.
6: We cannot control the flow. The flow is what the flow is. We just take advantage of the flow.
4: Still, some groups want Great River Hydro to put money in a fund to fix erosion. They've done that for other dams, but Ragonese wouldn't comment on whether that'll be part of this relicensing process. No matter what, he says, they need to preserve the dam's flexibility because these are the kind of plants that have to kick on fast if there's a problem elsewhere in the electric system.
6: Our mandate is, is larger than... Uh, How can we extract the highest amount of dollars from the water? We have a responsibility. That's why we have the license to provide a power resource that is needed to the New England grid.
3: This is my first paddle of the year. It feels like I just got out of the boat last fall.
4: Norm Sims is an avid paddler who works on relicensing for the Appalachian Mountain Club as a volunteer. He took me canoeing recently just below Vernon Dam, the last Great River hydro facility on the New Hampshire-Vermont border that's up for relicensing. We're in a hundred-year-old wood and canvas canoe, Sims is a collector, and it's a beautiful sunny day for a paddle. We glide past bucolic scenery, islands, and secret waterfalls. Sims keeps getting distracted by birds. And at first it's easy going. We're paddling with the current and the wind. But then the river starts to push back.
3: So you notice how it feels like we're not moving very fast? We may be entering the backwater from the Turner's Falls Dam. Which would be disappointing, because we have miles to go before we sleep.
4: When the next dam down isn't running, the water above it turns flat, which makes paddling harder. Still, Sims doesn't feel the dams are an obstacle to enjoying the river. In relicensing, he's working on improving routes for boaters to carry their vessels around the dams. And he's excited about the idea of new whitewater at Bellows Falls. He says he values the electricity the dams generate, but... This is our river, and it's our water.
3: They don't own it, but they use it to create profits for their business. And what we're talking about in relicensing is
4: that they pay a little rent on their fuel. And, you know, generally they know they're going to do that. Relicensing for these dams has been going on since 2012. Federal regulators are expected to keep evaluating the studies and proposals involved through at least 2019. For the New England News Collaborative, I'm Annie Ropeek.
2: Hydropower is still a much bigger piece of New England's energy mix than solar, but that industry is growing fast, and solar power's emergence as an important feature of New England's energy landscape just hit an important milestone. Normally, the amount of power drawn from the regional grid is lowest at night, but one sunny day this spring, residential solar arrays flipped that pattern around, and the phenomenon will likely become more frequent here in New England. Maine Public Radio's Fred Bever has more.
6: It happened on April
2: 21st.
7: It was a Saturday and it was the weekend and we had relatively mild weather, so there was light consumer demand on the electricity system. And it
8: was a particularly sunny day.
6: And George is a spokeswoman for ISO New England, the group that runs this region's bulk transmission grid.
8: We saw record high output
7: from our solar installations in the region, which led to the first time ever in New England... Seeing load and demand on the on the electricity system at a lower level in the middle of the day as opposed to overnight while
8: everybody's sleeping.
6: For solar power advocates in New England, it's a moment to savor. You you are seeing the promise of a distributed renewable
1: electric grid in the
6: charts and graphs coming from ISO, New England. Steve Hinchman is general counsel for a regional solar company called Revision Energy. He's standing by the inverter system of a 5,000-panel solar array the company recently installed at a growing business park in Brunswick. It shows that renewables deployed at the bottom of the grid can
1: offset demand and lower our overall need for electricity because we are generating the power that we need where we use it without having to have the grid deliver it.
6: Solar power's ability to make grid-scale reductions in demand was expected. The capacity of off-the-grid solar installations in New England, mostly rooftop solar panels, has grown almost tenfold since 2012 to 2400 megawatts. Roughly speaking, that's enough to power almost 2 million homes when the sun is shining.
0: The Long-time rhetorical flourish that environmentalists have liked to use about how fast the electricity grid is changing turns out to actually be true now.
6: Jerry Elmer is a Rhode Island-based attorney with the Conservation Law Foundation. He says that as behind-the-meter solar lowers demand on the regional grid, that can avert the need for costly new long-distance transmission lines and upgrades. And when all that local solar production reduces daytime demand on the grid, that can lower overall electricity prices in real-time markets. And most importantly, from the environmentalist's perspective, it lowers the amount of carbon dioxide pollution created in electricity production.
0: It's paying off in terms of lower consumer costs. It's paying off in terms of lower carbon emissions. It's paying off in... Being able to see real, tangible change on the electricity grid.
6: Policymakers around New England continue to debate whether all electricity users should help pay for poles, wires, and other distribution services that rooftop solar power users need from time to time. But even with that issue in flux, it's expected that solar capacity will almost triple over the next several years. That will create some challenges ahead, with grid managers deciding what kind of quick-response power plants might be needed, including fossil-fueled facilities, to manage the rapid surge in demand on the grid that appears when the sun goes down. For the New England News Collaborative, I'm Fred Bever in Portland, Maine.
2: For more stories about energy in New
6: England, visit
2: nenc.news and go to our page, The Big Switch. Coming up, a look at Robert F. Kennedy's legacy, 50 years after his death. It's next. Next is made possible in part by our founding supporters who believe in the power of collaborative news coverage, including the Common Sense Fund, supporting the New England News Collaborative and its coverage of climate change and global warming. When we think about gun deaths in the U.S., we often think about mass shootings. But in New Hampshire and many other states, most gun deaths are suicides. This often overlooked statistic inspired the Gun Shop Project, an unlikely team of New Hampshire gun owners and public health experts who came together in hopes of curbing gun suicides. NHPR's Lauren Chulgin has more.
9: When Ralph D'Amico tells the Gun Shop Project origin story, he mentions two phone calls. They both came from Elaine Frank, then a public health expert at Dartmouth. And the first call was about 20 years ago. D'Amico owned a gun shop and Hooks it at the time.
3: You know, not to stereotype, but generally people from the medical community and people from the firearms community don't share a lot of common ground. <laughs> and uh, I said, hi.
9: <laughs> Frank was calling to see if D'Amico would be part of a local group to promote gun safety. He was skeptical at first, but decided to join. The second call came a few years after that, and it was a tough one.
4: You know, it's one of those calls where it's like, ooh, I don't really know if I want to do this.
9: Frank had some bad news. There were three suicides in six days, and each person had purchased a gun from D'Amico's shop. D'Amico was stunned. He hadn't heard anything about it.
3: Living with the idea that one of your customers has taken his or her life uh, is not a light burden. It's, it's very uncomfortable.
9: So together, D'Amico and Frank went back to their gun safety group, and they decided to focus their attention on gun suicides. Frank knew that suicides made up most of the gun deaths in New Hampshire, and that guns are used in most suicide deaths across the country.
4: And it's not because firearm owners are more likely to be depressed or have mental illness or even more likely to attempt suicide. But a suicide attempt with a firearm is far more likely to be lethal than by almost any other means.
9: So they decided gun shops would be the best place to start, hence the name The Gun Shop Project. They traveled to gun stores all over the state, handing out posters and cards that describe signs of suicidal behavior. And they talked to employees about how to avoid selling a firearm to someone who could be suicidal. Some shop owners were still skeptical. D'Amico says many of them felt it was a trick, another way to blame guns for violence.
3: I had one gun shop call me and he said, hey, what's going on here? And I told him, he said, so you think this is innocuous? Absolutely. It's fine. I said, trust me, I know the demons when I see them. This is not one of them.
9: In the end, about half of gun shops in New Hampshire hung up the prevention posters in their shop. And the coalition called it a success. Their work has inspired states all over the country to create their own versions of the gun shop project. But this all started 10 years ago, before Sandy Hook, before Parkland, before Santa Fe. And that skepticism from gun owners has grown as division over gun issues has widened. And those feelings have been front of mind lately, as the Gunshot Project tries a new approach this summer. They want New Hampshire firearms instructors to show a video about suicide prevention in their classes. Welcome to my classroom. Have a seat. Thomas Brown has been a firearm instructor for over two decades, and most of his time has been spent here at the Manchester Firing Line Indoor Range. Brown joined the coalition a few years ago, and he's been helping craft the language of this video in a way that he says could help win over people who are pro-gun.
10: We as gun owners are constantly under attack, uh, and one of the things that is constantly thrown in our face is the number of gun deaths. And when you realize that two-thirds roughly are suicides, that if we could reduce that number, wouldn't that be good for us?
9: The point of this video is to educate about the signs of suicide and to encourage those watching to hold on to a friend or family member's gun if it seems like they're having a hard time.
2: Sometimes getting involved at a critical point during someone's despair may make the difference.
9: But among the dramatic music and public health pointers is language like this that helps get Brown's argument across.
2: Suicide deaths are terrible for everyone involved firearm suicides also hurt the cause of liberty when the numbers are used to justify more gun laws. Let's work together to reduce all suicides, especially the ones where firearm may be used.
9: Brown has tested out the video in a few of his classes, and he says it's already increased awareness.
10: Most people just nod their head and say, yeah, well, that makes sense, or they hadn't even crossed their mind about firearms and suicide.
9: This is the reaction Elaine Frank and Ralph D'Amico were hoping for with this new project. D'Amico says they could make an even bigger impact with firearm safety classes because people are there ready to learn about guns, and the message is coming from a trusted source.
3: Firearms instructors, they reach a tremendous amount of people, all new shooters. What better way to make people aware than to take a new shooter and, if I can use that terrible term, indoctrinate them into thinking positively about suicide prevention.
9: But this project and this partnership for Elaine Frank also speaks to an even larger kind of progress. To even create that video or work up the posters, people from New Hampshire's mental health, public health and gun communities all had to sit down and work together. And to do that, they all decided they would only focus on gun suicides, nothing else.
4: doesn't mean you have to give up your view on guns or on public health or on overreaching government or whatever, you can keep doing all those things. But in the meetings, you focus on what you have in common. And
9: Frank says this consensus building among people with opposing views, that's something the country seems to have lost that she thinks would be a really good thing to bring back. The coalition expects to start sharing the video with other New Hampshire firearm instructors in August. For the New England News Collaborative, I'm Lauren Julgen.
2: Last year, Vermont Public Radio published an investigation into gun deaths in that state. VPR analyzed the data from all of the gun-related deaths from 2011 to 2016. In that period, 89% of Vermont's gun deaths were suicides. VPR just updated this database with data from 2017. Now, since that time when we spoke with VPR about their study, Vermont has done something uncommon for the state with a long history of gun ownership. It's passed a series of gun control measures. Here with us to walk through what the data shows is Liam Elder-Connors, a reporter with VPR. Welcome to Next, Liam. Hi, John. Well, first of all, what are the main takeaways from the data that VPR
11: published last year? The overwhelming uh, gun deaths in Vermont are suicides. So, as you said, 89% of the gun deaths are suicides. And if we dig a little bit deeper into that, white men account for 91% of the people who died by suicide uh, by gun in Vermont. Uh, in the, of that, current or former members of the armed forces account for nearly 30% of suicides over the first six-year period we looked at. Moving on to homicides, 47 people were shot and killed, uh, or shot and killed someone else in those six years. And we also know domestic violence played a role, but we can't determine every case based on the death certificates we looked at because they don't always mention the relationship between the shooter and the victim. So we know that, you know, domestic violence does play some role in the homicides and even some of the suicides that happen in the state. But it's it's hard to tell exactly from the death certificates we looked at for this investigation.
2: And so how did this data differ from the rest of the United States? What did Vermont look like compared to everywhere else?
11: Well, for comparison, uh, the New York Times reports that in the U.S. as a whole, 60 percent of gun deaths are suicides. So Vermont at 89 percent of gun deaths or suicides is higher than what is happening in the rest of the country.
2: So what about this year's data? As you looked through the new numbers that that came through and, and stacked them up against what you'd seen over the course of the last five years or so, what jumped
11: out? Well, the numbers look remarkably similar to the first six years we looked at. 66 people died from gunshot wounds. And of that, 91% of those deaths were suicides. Again, most of the suicides were white men, and there were five homicides last year. So really, the, the trends stayed pretty much the same. Uh, the numbers are a little bit different, but overall, things look about the same.
2: Is anybody doing anything about this gun suicide rate? This seems like a trend that uh, people who make the laws in Vermont might want to look closely at.
11: Yeah, that's an interesting point. You know, when I was doing some reporting on this last year, I looked a lot at how how the state was responding to the the high suicide rates. Um, and, you know, a lot of the public health officials I spoke with weren't surprised by the numbers that we had found. And they told me, you know, we know this is an issue and we're trying to find ways to work on it. It's tough because guns can come across as a very political issue when you start talking about, you know, maybe having somebody not hold on to a weapon if they're in a, a time, you know, where they might be considering suicide. So some ways that, that people are looking at addressing suicide rates in Vermont are uh, the Gunshot Project, which was started in New Hampshire. So that's one way. Um, another organization I talked to, they handed out free gun locks and lock boxes. And the program director of that told me that they really try to educate people that this is about safety. It's not about taking people's guns away. It's about making sure people are safe in, in how they store and handle their weapons.
2: Now, as I said at the top, something very interesting happened this year in Vermont, something that when we spoke with your colleagues last year about your study, we weren't expecting to have happen, which is uh, Governor Phil Scott, a Republican, signed some legislation that enacted gun control measures in the state. It is a state with a long tradition of gun ownership. And I guess I'm wondering how you feel some of the numbers that you brought to light in your reporting last year, whether or not it affected people's thoughts about gun ownership in the state or or what the reaction has been to some of these gun control measures now being signed.
11: Well, you know, some of these numbers we, we found were brought up in the state house during the conversation around the, the policies that were enacted. But I would say that the bills that passed this year were actually a response to an alleged threat that a young man had made to shoot up a high school in Vermont. And that threat came to light uh, just a day or so after the shootings in Parkland, Florida. So really, uh, the movement we saw in in the state capitol in Vermont on gun control was a direct response to that alleged threat and not so much the numbers and the the gun deaths that already were happening in the state, though two of the bills that passed in Vermont this year could potentially halt some of the gun deaths that we're, we're seeing in the state. One bill, an imminent harm bill, can be used to take a weapon away from somebody um, in the case where they might cause immediate harm to someone or themselves. Uh, mostly that bill, I think, is being thought of as taking a weapon away from someone who might be thought to do harm to others. Um, but there's also a bill that would allow law enforcement to take weapons away if they respond to a domestic violence call, if there's a weapon out in the open. So we could see those two being used to to kind of reduce gun deaths in Vermont. But we kind of have to see how it plays out first.
2: That is interesting, though, that imminent threat law. It's something that's been called a red flag law in other states really is thought of as a way to stop a a school shooting or other mass homicide event. But indeed, it has the possibility of potentially preventing some of these large number of suicides that your state is experiencing.
11: It's possible. I mean, you know, if you see a family member or a friend who you're concerned about um, and you know that they have weapons, it's possible it could be used to to remove their weapon temporarily. Um, I don't think it's been used in that way yet. I'll be interested to see if it is ever used in that way. And that's something that I hope we'll, we'll kind of keep an eye on going forward. Liam
2: Elder Connors is a reporter at Vermont Public Radio. We'll have links to their reporting on gun deaths in the state of Vermont at nextnewengland.org. Liam, thanks so much. You bet. States around New England continue to strengthen gun control in hopes of reducing gun-related deaths. Rhode Island's Governor Gina Raimondo recently signed a bill that bans the use and sale of bump stocks and another that allows the removal of firearms from individuals deemed to be dangerous. And Connecticut's Governor Dan Malloy has also banned bump stocks in the state. The Kennedys are America's most long-lasting and influential political family, and their roots are deep here in our region. On June 5, 1968, Robert Kennedy was only 42 and was campaigning for the job his brother had held just a few years earlier. Robert Kennedy was shot and killed in Los Angeles. John F. Kennedy's assassination spawned countless conspiracy theories about who was behind that murder, but theories about the death of Robert Kennedy are far less familiar to the public. A political science professor at the University of Massachusetts Dartmouth created an archive devoted to RFK's assassination that has been a valuable resource for researchers looking into alternate theories about the murder. John Kalish
12: reports. The late Philip Melanson created the Robert F. Kennedy assassination archive in 1984, four years before the release of the Los Angeles Police Department's files on the killing. Those files were sealed for 20 years after the shooting. Melanson wrote two books about RFK's assassination, challenging the official conclusion that Sirhan Sirhan was the sole assassin in the pantry of the Ambassador Hotel in Los Angeles. Here's Melanson in a 1993 public radio documentary.
10: To date, there have been four witnesses whose accounts seem credible to me who have talked about seeing a man in plain clothes with a gun in the pantry. And three of those four witnesses allege that such a gun was fired in proximity to Kennedy.
12: Melanson believed that Sirhan was programmed with the use of hypnosis to carry out the killing. Often assassination conspiracies like this are dismissed as loopy, but Philip Melanson brought academic rigor to his work. He's
11: still revered by the community that looks into these issues.
12: Jess Melanson is his son. He remembers his father as a man devoted to his research who traveled far and wide, making media appearances in an effort to educate the public on political assassinations.
11: For him as a political scientist, to understand how our political leaders were killed and who killed them and what their motivation was is hugely important to understand the political implications of what happened and how it changed public policy and how it changed the country.
12: At UMass Dartmouth, librarian Judy Ferrar takes me down to a climate-controlled storage room where the collection is kept. She rolls open a row of 12-foot-high shelves containing about a million pages of documents and other materials relating to the assassination.
4: Starts with the LAPD records here, then the FBI records, we have the House Select Committee on Assassinations, photographs... Newspaper clippings, private investigators' materials. These are all the audio tapes.
12: The audio tapes include recordings of police interviews in which witnesses were browbeaten and pressured to change their stories, as well as recordings of hypnosis sessions conducted by psychiatrists. Sirhan had no recollection of the shooting during the sessions. Reach for your gun, Sirhan. It's your last chance, Sirhan. Reach for your gun. Where is your gun?
2: Where is for? If you want to research the murder of Robert Kennedy, they have lots and lots of audiotapes that other people don't have. Interviews that various researchers have made, talking to witnesses.
12: Bill Clayber is the co-author with Philip Melanson of the 1997 book Shadow Play, which refers to the RFK assassination as an unsolved murder. Clayber went back to the UMass archive to do research for the book's just-published revised edition. He also has a hand in a new podcast that makes extensive use of audio from the archive.
3: Senator Robert F. Kennedy has just won the California Democratic primary. My thanks to all of you, and now it's on to Chicago, and let's win there. But to get to the White House, he'll have to pass through the hotel's kitchen pantry.
12: Bill Kleber is part of a small fraternity of journalists and investigators who've spent decades researching the assassination of Robert Kennedy. Many in that fraternity have praised the work of Philip Melanson. Phil was a brave man.
2: I don't think I quite appreciated the extent of his courage when I was working with him. He was a tough guy. He took on the CIA. He took on some really
6: rough characters in books that he wrote.
12: Robert Kennedy Jr. joined the list of those who believe that Sirhan was not the sole assassin. That group now includes the 93-year-old labor activist who was shot in the head with what is believed to be the first bullet out of Sirhan's gun. For the New England News Collaborative... I'm John Kalish.
2: Earlier that year, 1968, the Vietnam War was raging. Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. was assassinated, and Cesar Chavez, the leader for migrant farm workers, went on a hunger strike. Robert Kennedy, then a senator from New York, brought hope to the striking workers, and as WBUR's Shannon Dooling reports, Kennedy's message struck a far different tone than today's political discourse.
8: In March of 1966, as Peter Edelman remembers it, Robert Kennedy didn't need much convincing to get on a plane headed for Delano, California.
10: I said Cesar hey, Chavez is a impressive young organizer and leader of the farm workers, and this is the first and best chance of succeeding in creating a recognized union for farm workers.
8: Edelman was a legislative aide for Kennedy, who was on a Senate subcommittee on migratory labor. Edelman traveled with Senator Kennedy to California's Central Valley for committee hearings, investigating why grape farm workers were striking— Tensions were high during the hearings, with owners of the farms and the migrant workers sharing the same hall.
10: And as he walks in and sits down and, and kind of tunes in, the sheriff is there testifying, and he's telling the committee that he had arrested these uh, farm
3: workers. If I have reason to believe that there's going to be a riot started and somebody tells me that there's going to be trouble if you don't stop them, That it's my duty to stop them. Well, then
11: you go out and arrest them? Absolutely. How can you go arrest somebody if they haven't violated the law?
3: They're ready to violate the law. In other words... Just
11: like these labor people out here, they ask their attorney, what shall we do? Could I suggest in the luncheon period of time that the sheriff and the district attorney read the Constitution of the United States?
8: The workers erupted into cheers for Kennedy's rebuke of the Kern County Sheriff, sensing they had an advocate in Kennedy. Edelman says Kennedy met the leader of the migrant worker movement, Cesar Chavez, shortly after the hearing.
10: We were in the parking lot, and Chavez came from a slightly different direction, and they they met, and they shook hands. And just there was an instant bonding that made them friends forever.
8: Kennedy would later support adding farm workers to the National Labor Relations Act. And in 1968, he traveled back to Delano, back to see his friend, Cesar Chavez. Chavez was fasting, committing to a hunger strike, asking for better wages, better working conditions, and the right to unionize. When Kennedy touched down in Delano, he made it clear why he was back.
11: The farm workers have suffered and uh, grown much more slowly economically than any other segment of our society. It's terribly unfair and very unreasonable and uh, very, very unjust. And these people have suffered tremendously.
10: I remember in 1968, it was a difficult time for us during the fest.
8: Paul Chavez is one of Cesar Chavez's sons and president of the Cesar Chavez Foundation. He was just a young boy when Kennedy visited in 1968, as his father was at the peak of his hunger strike.
10: My father still suffered, but the fact that that Bobby Kennedy came out to lend support um, really gave people a lot of hope and pride, and, and it comforted a lot of people during difficult times.
8: Kennedy sat with Cesar Chavez as he broke his fast, and he walked among the picket lines, listening to chants of Viva Kennedy. Kennedy's willingness to be present, to go where other politicians would not, and to focus on hope, those are things Paul Chavez says are missing from our current political dialogue.
10: It seems like policies and statements are being made that, that appeal to the worst in us as, as a people. And if you take a look at, at Bobby Kennedy's life and he really talked about this tremendous faith he had in the goodness and the kindness of American people, when you have politics and, and there's a morality in, in the discussion, then, then I think it, it's bound to, uh, to lead to good and positive things.
11: And it's not just a question of
0: wages, it's a question of housing, it's a question of education, it's a question of living conditions, it's a question, a basic question of hope for the future.
8: A week after visiting Delano, Bobby Kennedy declared his candidacy for president. It was a bid that would end with his death, only three months into the campaign. For the New England News Collaborative, I'm Shannon Dooling.
2: Coming up, the misunderstood history of stone walls in New England. It's next. Next is made possible in part by our founding supporters who believe in the power of collaborative news coverage, including the John Merck Fund, supporting the New England News Collaborative in its coverage of climate and clean energy. A few weeks ago on the show, we took a tour of New England architecture with Duo Dickinson. He took us around his hometown of Madison, Connecticut, talking about how the unique design and landscape of our region reflects the character of the people who live here. During our conversation, we focused on a
0: quintessential New England feature, our stone walls. Stone walls are, to me, the largest physical remnant of human failure in the world, maybe except for the pyramids. It's the single largest complex, of embodied human energy, that it now serves literally no purpose. But there
2: are also so many beautiful details. Oh my gosh! In in New England architecture is filled with detail that really is nothing more than purely decorative, if right. you if you get right down to it, and. In some cases hasn't held up all that that, that terribly well. How, how are stone walls any
0: different? Stone walls are different because they were, I think, well, I know, that they were necessary. You had to get rid of the stones to grow stuff. So there wasn't an option of making something beautiful. You just made something. Amazing stone walls that were done mostly because it wasn't enough to simply take the rocks and mound them. They actually said, well, let's make them so they last for a very long time. So they interlocked them, they battered them, they gave them a real base, so that even though the ground came and went because of freeze-thaw, they wouldn't fall apart. They would would, be stout and stable. And they ended up making what you call a marker into a feature, an architectural feature, because you would actually be having cleared land and seeing this edge and you wanted to look at something, this is my impression, that you felt good about. You put all this time into getting the stuff to a place, you might as well have it not look like a rock pile. You wanted it to feel like it was something you and your predecessors and your successors have made over time that was embodied your hopes and plans and future desires for your legacy.
2: But not everyone agrees with Duo's opinions about the history of stone walls in the region. Tom Wessels is a terrestrial ecologist and professor emeritus at Antioch University, New England. I
1: asked him if he agrees with Duo's stone wall theory. Those walls were utilitarian, and they weren't built just to get rid of rock. You could simply dump rock over embankments or things like that, which actually was initially done. Those walls were built actually to keep livestock in pastures or out of crop fields and hay fields. And uh, there's a general misconception that these walls were built uh, just as farmland was opened up, and that's actually not the case. Farmers much preferred fencing made out of split rail zigzag fencing or other types of split rail fencing because they could put up probably 10 times as much of that a day as they could stone fencing and it was better at keeping livestock in pastures or out of crop fields or hay fields. It's only when we move into a period where so much agricultural land has been opened, for example, that would be about 80% of the land uh, below 2,000 feet in central and southern New England, that there's no longer enough wood left to build wood fencing. And so farmers have to go back to stone dumps and bring the stone back to make stone fencing. So these walls weren't just to get rid of stone. They were intentionally built up for fences. In 1810, about 20% of central New England was open agricultural land, but still 80% forested. But in the next three or four decades, those uh, 4,000 Reno sheep swelled to about 6 million. And in that period of a little over three decades, New England became pretty much central New England became again about 80% deforested below 2,000 feet. So something like 60% of all of central New England was clear cut to make way for sheep. And all the walls up, the stone fences we see up in central New England except for the estate walls which came in later, back in the later 19th century and early 20th century, all the woodland stone walls we see in in central New England were built in basically three decades and it's estimated it's over 125,000 miles of those woodland stone fences built enough that if we lined it up, it'd wrap the equator five times, stretch more than halfway to the moon, and I've calculated it would be six times as massive if we piled it all of all the pyramids in Egypt, and it was all done about three decades. So if central New England were on the Mediterranean, I have no doubt that these uh, central New England uh, woodland stone fences would be the eighth wonder of the world, but they're not. It's just an intriguing part of the history of that, that portion of New England.
2: Was the initial impulse to, to move these stones into rows strictly because they wanted to keep their livestock from moving elsewhere? Or as Duo said, was there something to the idea that they just had to put the stones someplace in the, in the first place?
1: No, it's, it's more the former. Um, there's lots of areas where you can find crop fields or hay fields adjacent to what were woodlots, and you won't find stone fences there. You'll find stone dumps or that stones are just brought to the side and dumped. They weren't actually laid up and laid in a way that uh, took a lot of labor and time. So these farmers weren't unintelligent. They, you know They're going to put their labor where they needed to. So when you start seeing uh, stones that are actually laid up to make walls, you're looking at fencing, again, to keep livestock in pastures or out of crop fields or hay fields because otherwise they just dumped it. And you can see lots of areas where there you can find stone dumps that are adjacent areas that weren't between pastures and crops and hay fields.
2: Most of the stone walls, at least the remnant stone walls from, say, uh, 100 or 150 years ago that I find in the New England towns I go through, wouldn't do much good if a, if a sprightly cow or even a sheep tried to get over them. Was that, was that the case back in the day, that the stone walls were, were built up high enough that they could actually keep cattle from moving?
1: Yeah. Now, generally, there's more to the story than that. It's one thing to lift stones up to about waist height if you're laying them on a wall. And that's the general sort of height that we find uh, these stone fences. But then farmers would use uh, cross poles and a rail above that, usually to get up to a five foot or a four and a half foot height. And that would be adequate for keeping livestock uh, in pastures.
2: I'm wondering why this type of stone wall construction isn't something that's widely known outside of New England. I I know that there are stone walls elsewhere in the world, but it's so much a feature of our region, and it's something I don't connect with other parts of the U.S. Why is that?
1: Well, because we live in an area that was glaciated, and when the glaciers uh, were retreating, they dropped this jumble of material called glacial till with all these rocks in it, and when... People came in here, the British initially, to start working this area. There was rocks that was coming out of the ground that they had to get rid of out of their hayfields and crop fields. So in other parts of the country, you don't have rock in the ground like that. So they're just not uh, common features. I've often thought that if settlement in the United States had happened from the West Coast coming East and people had expanded across those clean, rock-free, rich prairie soils in the Midwest – and then started making their way up into the northeast in all this rocky ground, I think they just would have stopped. But the settlement happened in the opposite way. <laughs> they would have just turned around and gone back, you think? Well, I don't think they would have gone back. they just say, this is far enough. That can be just left in woods, uh, <laughs> you know. Because who wants to actually do all the labor of moving all that rock?
2: And and that, I think, is at the heart of Duo's point, if if perhaps he makes it in a different way than, than you do. Building a stone wall is hard work. Farming in New England is excruciatingly hard work, at least comparatively speaking, to some of the more fertile parts of America. And that, I think, is one of the things that we grasp onto when we see the stone wall. Yes, it's beautiful. But if you really sit down and think about what it took to make that thing uh, a couple hundred years ago, it becomes, I don't know, imbued with something a little different than just looking at a pile of rocks.
1: Oh, it is. I mean, I often look at them and think, uh, how many hands have touched and moved these stones? How many people? But again, given the nature of the situation, it was a necessity. They needed fencing, they didn't have the wood, so they had to put that labor in um, to making those stone fences. It wasn't a choice, it was a necessity.
2: Tom Wessels is Professor Emeritus at Antioch University, New England. Tom, thank you so much for joining us, I really appreciate it. Okay, my pleasure. So they don't agree on everything, but Tom and Duo do agree on one thing. Stone walls take a lot of work to build. Stonemason Thea Alvin practices the dying art of building stone walls. As part of VPR's summer school series, she described the process of building one.
7: I always approach the wall as if it is a conversation. It's a dialogue between me and the stones. I look at all of them and see who wants to fit where and what space is open. And you're creating rows and levels and layers and details, just like a friendship would be and relationships between each stone. And then you, you come to a final height and that will want to be solid and stable and just the way that you see a brick pattern with two bricks down and then one across the top you do the same with the stones two stones down and one across the top and that's called bonding so if you follow that pattern and additionally follow the pattern of going towards the interior of the wall then you'll build a strong wall i should use gloves i don't use gloves i love to To feel the stone. I love how how the stones feel. I feel like I communicate with them and by touching them I understand them better. I always start from the corner when there's a corner on a double faced stone wall it's called the cheek end and that will want to be nice and square and level because that's what you're going to see and the corner really drives what happens in the wall. So we'll put a nice 90 degree angle on this side I think that uh, there's a couple of square stones right here and we'll use those for the cornerstones. The part of the wall that you see with your eyes is called the face and when I build a wall I always work on it with my face facing the face of the wall like a conversation that you'd have. So if your wall has two faces and you're working on one side you need to go all the way around to the other side to work on it face to face because you really can't fix something if you're not looking at it. The wall itself needs to obey three rules, water temperature and gravity. So your stone wall as a structure wants to shed water. Water happens a lot actually in Vermont and so we want the water to get out of the wall system. So the way that you arrange the stone needs to shed the water away. So ultimately you want the stones that you're laying to be flat and level or shed just a little bit out. So let's look at these stones. Each one of the stones has a face. It's got a top and a bottom. So each one of the stones that we pick up will want to be in the orientation where the face is on the front. Let's lay them out on the string line. So we have a straight line and we can create a straight line of where the, the wall will be. We want to shape the stones if there's any little tips. Let's cut this part off of the stone right here because it doesn't fit well against the next one. I'm not going to cut on the front of it because I like the front to be really natural, but the back is too big on this side. So let's cut this part off and then we can lay the stones out so that they're all in a straight line. When we build the wall, you have to put something behind it. What would you put behind it? Because otherwise you have a lot of weak, floppy stones. So let's put some more stones, maybe, maybe that one that's not so pretty. It doesn't have much of a face on it. We'll tuck that one in the back. A dry stonemason is somebody who builds stone walls without mortar. And uh, that's what I'm doing now is building stone walls and stone sculptures without mortar. So that has been in evolution for the last 30 years as I've learned to shed the mortar and just trust gravity.
2: That's stonemason Thea Alvin. Amy Colt-Noise produced that story for VPR. You can join us for a live Next event as part of the International Festival of Arts and Ideas in New Haven, Connecticut, on Tuesday, June 12th. We'll be trying to get answers to a tough question. Is immigration good for the economy? For more information, go to our Facebook page at Next New England. The executive producer of Next is Katie Talarski. Production help this week from Lily Tyson and Ali Oshinsky. Our digital editor is Carlos Mejia. Our theme music is by composer Todd Merrill. You can hear more of his music at ToddMerrill.com. Thanks also to Goodnight Blue Moon for their song, New England. The New England News Collaborative is funded in part by the Corporation for Public Broadcasting, with support from Douglas Stone and Mary Schwab Stone through the Smart Family Foundation of New York, and the Melville Charitable Trust. It's powered by WBUR Boston, Vermont Public Radio, New Hampshire Public Radio, Maine Public Radio, Rhode Island Public Radio, WSHU Public Radio Group, New England Public Radio, and Connecticut Public Radio.